It's Monday, June 14th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Jason Moser. Good to see you. Hey, hey, good to see you. We've got the long-term future of Apple. We've got the near-term future of consumer spending. But we're going to start with the present situation at Lordstown Motors. CEO Steve Burns has resigned. CFO Julio Rodriguez has dis- uh, resigned. Shares of Lordstown Motors are down nearly 20%. Um, this is, uh, what, it was just last week, I think, that uh, the electric truck maker warned that it had, and I'm quoting here, substantial doubt about its ability to continue as a company. Um, I guess my question is, shouldn't this stock be down more than 20%? It should. I don't remember the last time we had this combination of really bad factors. This is not Jeff Bezos announces he's stepping down as CEO, and sometime later this year, Andrew Jassy's going to take over. It's, I'm out, the CFO is out, we're not sure this business can continue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a lot to digest. I mean, that that it obviously not a good look. I mean, when you lose your CEO and CFO, and there are questions of the the business actually even being able to make it, given that the business literally just went public via SPAC here recently. Um, You say what you will about Tesla. I mean, we have a lot of fun batting that one back and forth on on the shows. I think that this, to me, this is a perfect example of how tough it is going to be for so many of these newfangled automakers um, to to be able to compete in in the new EV space. Not only compete, but really even to catch up. I mean, it, it does... It does show you that for for all of, of the criticism we we can lob out there on on Tesla and, and Elon Musk, I, I mean there has been a method to that madness. I mean it, he he has had the benefit of time and trust and capital to build up a business uh, where they're able to to really handle such a monumental challenge. And and with Lordstown Motors, I mean this this is this is just a I mean this is a, a one year old company essentially. I mean they revealed a a pickup truck prototype uh, last year, or, or I mean, was it even last year? I mean, no, it wasn't. I mean, it, it, it literally is just just getting started in and uh, going public via SPAC pre-revenue. I mean, really, I mean, there's there's nothing but the promise of growth in the EV market to 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 make investors feel like maybe this is is one way to to be able to participate in in that opportunity but it just goes to show you i think the monumental challenges that that come with this space i mean making cars is really hard changing consumer behavior is really hard and in in really with evs you're trying to do both of those things right and so uh, when it comes to lordstown i i mean did did they overpromise? Maybe were investors a little bit too eager to get in on a a Tesla like story? Maybe I mean it just goes to show you. I think SPACs that there are risks that come with these SPACs. They are not always good for investors. It's it's typically good for the company because it gets them out there front and center uh, much more quickly and gives them access potential access to more capital. Uh, but but yeah, it, it it really does go to show uh, the risks involved with these SPACs, and, and regardless of the story that they spin, uh, there needs to be an underlying business uh, 
uh, for investors. And, and in this case, it just doesn't look like there really is one. And, and that obviously is a big problem. Yeah, I, I think I've made this comment before that over the years, I've gotten the chance to talk with executives in the automotive industry. And I'm not going to name names, but I have asked them, you know, people from different companies about sort of the idea that, look, anytime there's a big recall in the automotive industry uh, around safety, and look, there are recalls all the time, and, and most of them are very minor, but, you know, sort of the big ones that in, usually that involve a vehicle on fire. Um, and I've asked them, like, hey, look, when this happens, it, like, if it's not at your company, you still sort of, it's not great for the overall industry, right? And everyone has confirmed that, where it's just like, yeah, there, there, there is a degree to which um, a lot of consumers are willing to paint everyone in a particular industry with the same brush. And uh, fairly or unfairly, th that just happens. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the, the SPAC process because I sort of feel like the pendulum is starting to swing the other way a little bit with SPACs in general. And I think this is one of those situations that um, definitely doesn't go in the plus column. That, you know, from this point forward, if they weren't already going to do this, some amount of investors are going to look at companies that become newly public companies via SPAC, and some group of investors is going to say, is this another Lordstown Motors? Yeah, and you know it's it's interesting to think about because so Matt Frankel, my partner in crime on the industry focused financials, he and I talk about SPACs a lot. Um, and, and, and I like his mindset in regard to specs. They really are, they really are a management story. I mean, from the very beginning, the, the shell company, right, the blank check company, um, you're, you're, you're counting on that management team to uh, pick a good candidate to actually bring in into into their to their business uh, you you certainly are relying on good management on the other side of the equation with the company that is that is going to be brought public and it, it, it because they come to the, the market so much sooner in in their lives right I mean so many of these companies are coming to coming to, to the public markets just pre-revenue. I mean, think about that for a second. You've got a company that's two, three billion dollar market capitalization that generates zero dollars in sales. Now, th you have to, that, that requires a tremendous leap of faith. And, and many of these companies that come public these days are pre-revenue. And so, I mean, we've had a lot of fun with sort of the, the 40 times sales is sort of the new per, the new PE, right? Price to sales is the new PE. And, and, and now, I mean, pre-revenue is, is, is all the rage, apparently. Uh, you you got to really be careful. And you have to, I think, look at the greater market, too, to get an idea of what this company is trying to do. Because some companies are really going up against I mean, just monumental challenges. I mean, in with the auto automobile industry, I mean, when you look at some of the numbers involved here, GM, right, General Motors, they ha they have this goal to produce only EVs by 2035, and they're plowing money hand over fist in, into this idea, right, in, into this goal at 27 billion dollars plus. Right, Ford, basically the same story, right? I mean, they want they want to produce they want forty percent of their vehicles to be EVs by twenty thirty, um, and obviously they, they've they've uh, created a lot of awareness just with the new F one fifty, but but again, twenty two billion dollars they're plowing into that into that initiative, and so you, you all of a sudden you realize the numbers that are involved 
with these these uh, these automakers that have been right, these legacy automakers that have been around for a long time, they've already got all of this infrastructure in place. Now they have to change things around a little bit and and uh, do things a little bit differently. But generally speaking, the heavy lifting for the most part has been done on the production side, and and they can they can just put out millions of vehicles a year. I mean, it just, it takes a lot to be able to do that. And so then when you see a company like Lordstown go public, I mean, while the promise is exciting and and you love what they stand for in theory, at least, I mean, because it sounds like they may stand for fraud too, who knows? (laughs) But I mean, generally speaking, you know, you want to get behind a company like this, but, but as investors, it it really is, it it takes a lot of work to, to be able to balance the excitement and the enthusiasm with the reality of of the situation on the ground. And, and I think that for most of us, I mean, we could have looked at Lordstown and said, you know what, I, I'm rooting for a business like this, but there's no way on God's green earth that I'm investing in a business like this today because they just simply have no track record. They've proven to me nothing. And and unfortunately, we're, we're seeing sort of the downside uh, to, to that today. And uh, just before we move on, lest anyone think um, you were throwing words around, uh, it it is worth pointing out that Lordstown Motors has confirmed that the SEC is investigating the company because they've been accused of fraud. Oh, yeah, that wasn't unsubstantiated. (laughs) I mean, it's already... No, I know. I'm just saying there might have been a listener who was like, wow, that's that's bold of him. It's like, (laughs) no, that's that's coming from the company. (laughs) Um, Let's move on to Brian Moynihan, uh, the CEO of Bank of America. He was on CNBC this morning. Um, Some... uh, You tell me if you're surprised by these numbers. I was a little surprised because he was talking about consumer spending, not compared to last year. He was talking about consumer spending data that Bank of America is seeing so far year to date compared to 2019, and it's up 20%. I I figured it would be up. I'm a little surprised that it's up that much. Um, I, I'm, I I'm actually, also I'm also happy that it's up that much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think we all are. I mean, it, it is it is another positive sign, right? Um, I'm, I'm not that surprised, and, and I'll tell you why. So, if we follow Bank of America um, as analysts, at least I do, just just to get a, a, a good idea of, of what the general economy is looking like, because it's such a big bank, obviously, because so much money is going through that entire network. Um, one thing they talk about, we saw signs of this back in January, and Bank of America announced a, a reported fourth quarter uh, earnings. They talked about the this confidence in in the level of deposits and the quality of deposits thanks to the stimulus i mean that was that was coming in i mean there was there was a reliability um in those deposits and they could see consumers uh, deposit accounts growing considerably uh but then they also they they tacked on this this uh term that that we hear from time to time the velocity of money and and so you know, we talk about the velocity of money. The velocity of money, ultimately, it's just it's the rate at which consumers and businesses in economy basically spend money, right? It's it's the rate that that money is moving through the economy, and and it's it's very reasonable 
to, to assume that in 2020, the velocity of money uh, was not necessarily uh, all that robust, right? I mean, if you look at the actual charts, I mean, they, they have they have charts for this at the uh, at, uh, the, the St. Louis Fed there. You could see from the beginning of 2020, the velocity of money just fell off a cliff. Uh, people were getting into defensive mode. They were saving as much as they could. There was a lot of uncertainty. People weren't spending. Um, and, and so now we're correcting from that. Um, it, 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 to me, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, I think that it's interesting to note that travel still hasn't recovered necessarily to to where it was before. I, I you know, I mean, I think that in time will correct itself as well. I mean, right now it's it's just more difficult, like physically, it's just more difficult to get out of the country uh, because there's so much required. But travel within the United States, uh, for example, is, is is starting to bounce back as well. But I think it's it's just a matter of of normalizing, right? Kind of getting back to kind of where we were. There is that coiled spring uh, from everything that was built up over 2020, and a lot of it goes back to that velocity of money. You could see signs that that just that the money wasn't moving around as much, and so that's a good metric to to look at. I mean, if you just you Google velocity of money and, and Fred, I think you'll actually it'll take you right to that chart. You can see historically. Uh, that 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 ratio. Um, to me, I, I think it's also interesting to, to think about not not just the, the bounce back in the economy, but all of these these ancillary effects that we're seeing from this. Um, in, in one of them, I think is just it's people feeling confident enough to actually now quit jobs. I mean, a year ago, everybody was more or less desperate for work, <laughs> and now we've we've the pendulum has swung all the way to the other side. People are actually at a higher rate than than than. In a, in a long, long time, I mean, people are feeling comfortable enough to go ahead and quit jobs and move elsewhere because perhaps there are more options. Perhaps they realize there's something else that they really want to do. They've been able to build up a little bit of savings there. Uh, so so it, it is interesting to see while the spending comes back, it, you're seeing people reconsider kind of what they're doing for a living and, and maybe uh, choosing a different path than they would have otherwise. Our email address is marketfullery at fool.com. Great question from Niraj Kapoor in Foster City, California. I've owned Apple for years, but now seeing a market cap in excess of $2 trillion, I wonder how much more can this monster keep growing? And then adds parenthetically, I know I'm probably wrong. Uh, I like the business a lot, but when I look at the potential for multi-bagger return, I'm not seeing it. I find companies like Square and Teladoc much more disruptive with massive growth ahead. So I wanted to reach out and see what you think about this issue and what would be your strategy. I think Apple is almost like holding an index fund in my portfolio, which I really don't want to do given how much I love investing in good companies and holding for the long term. Um, so one thought on on this, and uh, it, it, it's interesting, the whole idea that uh, you know Apple as an index fund. I don't own Apple, but I don't I don't think of it that way. Um, I, in part because of the business, I think more along the lines of like a Berkshire Hathaway, which is a you know a diversified portfolio of companies, and it's enormous, and the massive growth opportunities for Berkshire Hathaway are probably behind it, not ahead of it. So I look at a business like that as being akin to holding an index fund, but but that's just me. What? You know, this is, I, I said before we started recording, Jason, I feel like that there are a lot of Apple shareholders who may be thinking the same thing, which is like, 
okay, do I sell some of this and just put it to work <laughs> in other ways? Do I, you know, it's not, well, this company's dead, so I'm selling it all. But wh- what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I agree with you in regard to the index fund. That, and I mean, I, I think I understand the perspective of Niraj as well. I mean, I, I, I think he's just essentially referring to sort of the size, the reliability, the risk profile. Um, but to your point, yeah, I, I wouldn't view Apple necessarily that same way. And primarily, the, the main reason why is because for all that the company's done so well through the years, this still really is a phone company at the end of the day, right? I mean, this is an iPhone story. Um, they, they've done a good job over the past several years diversifying that revenue stream a little bit. You know, we, we, we talk about the services uh, side of the business and how th- that's the direction in which they're trying to steer the company. And they're doing, they're doing a, good, a good job with that. Uh, but, but it really all does, at the end of the day, come back to that installed base of iPhones. And so as the iPhone goes, so will Apple for uh, the foreseeable future. Um, now, yeah, it is a massive, massive company. And is it reasonable to expect multi-bagger returns from a holding like this? I mean, probably not. No, I mean, it's technically you can hang on to shares and over the course of five or 10 years, maybe those shares double or triple. And then, yeah, technically you've got a multi-bagger. Um, and, and that's great. I mean, let's not dismiss uh, stock returning uh, 15% annualized over the course of five years, right? I mean, that's that's a double, uh, essentially. Um, I, I think when it comes to Apple, businesses like this, it, it is just a matter of understanding where you are in your investing life and what your investing goals really are. And and so I think yeah, with Apple, I mean, it, let's let's also remember, I mean, there's the potential for innovation with a business like this. I mean, I fully expect them to continue to innovate and, and be one of the companies leading the way in developing new markets, particularly as, as technology just continues uh, to dictate everything that we do in the world. Um, I mean, when you have the resources at your disposal like this company does, you can pretty much try anything. And if it fails, you can just sweep it under the rug. And if it, and if it succeeds, it has it has the potential to, to really uh, help impact the business. But I I think, you know, when I look at businesses like Apple, I think there's a place for companies like these in everyone's portfolio. Uh, it, it just is a matter of where you are in your investing life and what your ultimate goals are. But I, I always like to look back to our Rule Your Retirement Service, headed up by Robert Brokamp, right? I mean, it is just such a wonderful resource for questions like these, because I look at model portfolios that they uh, have there uh, for for our members. And and so when we look at the model portfolio there for folks who are more than a decade out uh, from retirement, they say that, you know, maybe 25% of your portfolio should be de- dedicated toward, toward large caps, companies like Apple. Um, within a decade of retirement, that number should go up to 35%. If you're in retirement, that number should go up to 40%. That makes perfect sense, right? I mean, you're looking for something a little bit less risky as you enter those retirement uh, years. And, and so I think that's one area where you may want to look and say, uh, I may not feel this way right now if I'm of a certain age, if I'm 30 or 40 years old, but fast forward to 60, fast forward to 65 years old, and you're thinking, hey, now I'm in retirement or I'm thinking about retiring, and what does my portfolio look like? What kind of stocks do I want to own? Well, if you're saying at 65 that I want to own Apple, well, buying Apple when you're 65 probably isn't really the right move. The right move is to buy Apple when you're 35, just hang on to it. 
because then by the time you're 65, you benefited from 30 years of, of compounding dividend share repurchases in, in a ton of potential innovation. So that's the way I tend to look at a business like this. It, I, it's not an either or. You can own Teladoc, Square, and Apple. You can own all three. Um, it just feels like today, with uh, social media and meme stocks and the way that information moves, it, it does feel like there's that that idea that if it's not a multi-bagger, I don't even want to consider it. And I would just caution investors against that mindset. I, I, I really do believe in the power of diversification. I think there's room for a business like Apple in everyone's portfolio. It's just a matter of keeping your expectations in check. Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.